I'm Lisa Stone. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Parenting Aces. Welcome to the Parenting Aces podcast. I had the opportunity to go up to Chattanooga a few days ago for the Deco Turf High School Tennis Championships and had an absolute blast spending the day up there watching some amazing high school tennis at all levels of the game. I got to connect with my friend Randy Jenks from Universal Tennis Ratings. He and I kind of passed each other on I-75 as he was returning back to Florida and I was heading up to Chattanooga. So it was fun to catch up with him as well as to have the opportunity to chat with the tournament director, Brandon Feisner, again this year. And that interview you can find on ParentingAces.com. So enough about that. Let's move on to this week's episode of the Parenting Aces podcast. My guest this week is Tammy Matheny, who is a former collegiate coach at University of South Carolina Upstate. She was was the head men's and women's coach at USC Upstate and had an incredible coaching career there, taking that team to the highest level possible. And in 2008, Tammy decided to move into the mental side of coaching and started Refuse to Lose Coaching LLC. So she has worked with athletes at the collegiate level in tennis, basketball, softball, baseball, volleyball, golf, field hockey, cross country, and soccer. She's also worked with recreational athletes, post-collegiate athletes, and junior high and high school athletes in a variety of sports. And as you'll hear in this interview, her passion for sports and how the mental game affects performance is infectious. And she really uses that passion to take her clients to the next level. So without further ado, here is my interview with Tammy Matheny. I'm so glad you could join us for this week's edition of the Parenting Aces podcast. Tammy Matheny, thank you so much for being with us. I'm excited to be here today. Well, you have vast experience, not only in the world of tennis, but in the world of sports in general. So I would love for you to give our audience a little bit of background on your own tennis playing, your coaching, and all of the other work you have done in and around sports. Okay. Um, I will have to give credit to my tennis background, to my father and to Chris Ebert. I know that's a name that many of the young juniors only know as an announcer nowadays. Um, (laughs) Sadly, that's true. (laughs) It's kind of like when you say Michael Jordan in basketball now, but uh, giving my age there a little bit. But I grew up in a small little town, and at that time, we didn't have tennis courts. And my dad was an avid sports enthusiast of all sports, and we were watching the U.S. Open, Chris Everett, and I just fell in love with her as an idol, and I wanted to be like Chris Everett from putting the wristband on my wrist like she did to behaving how she did, where you could never see if something was good or bad. Uh, That made a a huge lasting impression on me. So my dad would take my brother and I, and we'd hit against the garage, and then finally we had two tennis courts in our county, and uh, the three of us would go out there and play None of us really knew how to keep score, but we knew the object was to get the ball in the in the court. 
Um, so that was kind of my upbringing. And then my parents found a tennis coach about 40 minutes away that we would drive to once a week and started taking lessons there. I started on the high school team and then started playing uh, USTA tournaments around the southeast. And kind of that led me to college tennis. Um, my career was shortened there with a, a bad shoulder injury. Uh, once I had that taken care of, then I became interested in the coaching aspect of it and started uh, working on my USPTR certification. And that led to having me travel from Boone, North Carolina, to Tampa, Florida, to Hilton Head, and just to do a lot of coaching, and uh, as well as USTA elite play. So that's kind of, in a nutshell, um, how I ended up as tennis coach at the University of South Carolina Upstate with um, never coaching collegiate tennis at all, ever. And that <laughs> led to... <laughs> it's kind funny of like, how oh, you play tennis. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I, I learned the coaching, well, I knew the coaching of the tennis, but the coaching of a team, I learned uh, hands-on, you could say. Um, and what I realized in looking back, uh, my strength as a tennis coach was the mental and the physical aspects more than the technical and strategic aspects. Um, I would say uh, a lot of our competitors would say, you guys are always the most prepared mentally and physically. And I took that, um, you know, as a compliment. And uh, we had a lot of success at Upstate uh, when we were Division Two. Both men and women were nationally ranked. Um, my last year, we made the transition to Division One, and our ladies' team went undefeated in the conference, and uh, we were picked last that year. So that was a, wow. a, a nice accomplishment. So I, I've kind of dabbled in about every aspect of tennis that I possibly can, and now I actually work with uh, a lot of high school tennis programs in the area, as well as some collegiate tennis athletes on the mental side now. And you still continue to play and compete in all sorts of different sports, right? And I, I read yeah. you're, you've done marathons, you're now a big cycling fan and cycling enthusiast. I, I mean, I, reading your bio is kind of mind-blowing, I have to tell you, and intimidating. <laughs> well, well, what I say, especially with the distance, uh, anyone can do it if you're willing to put the time and the effort. And, and that's, I guess, where my brain different differs. And uh, I, I guess a lot of us have addictions to things. Mine is how much can I push my brain and my body? And that's kind of what makes me tick. And, and that's mm. my passion. Now. And that's to try awesome. to give that to other people. Right, right. Well, I, I want to just give you a chance to kind of elaborate on something you said a couple minutes ago. And that is that opponents to for your college tennis team that you coached said that y'all were the best prepared physically and mentally. What do you think they meant by that? Can you be specific? On the physical side, we were in good shape. We wanted to get into that third set. If we got into that third set, we knew that we could win just by wearing, having worn our opponent out. Um, we knew the longer the points went on, we just had that mindset because we were we did spend a lot of time on the physical aspect and making sure we were in shape. 
uh, for a tennis match. And in addition, we spent a lot of time on the mental aspect. Uh, I swam also as a, a young girl, and at a swim meet, I'd picked up a book one time, The Mental Side of Swimming. And it wasn't actually a book. It was uh, glued together. Mm-hmm. And it was the first psychology book, mental paper I'd ever read in my life. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this I can relate to this. Um, so I, I kind of used some of that with coaching without really knowing what I was doing at first and just created a mindset with our athletes, um, refuse to lose. That That's why my company is called Refuse to Lose. Now it became a motto for our team, just this mindset, we weren't going to lose. And, and you saw that in how we responded to bad calls or just our confidence in a bad shot. Okay, next point. And, of course, we weren't on every play or every match, but more times than not, we could respond to adversity. And and that was due to the training and to the athletes being receptive to it as well. And I think that's a big key, the athletes being receptive to it. How did you get them to a place where they were open to working on the mental piece of their game? I don't know if I gave them a choice. As a college coach, you kind of have that authority over them. Um, I say that jokingly, but uh, I just stressed to them the importance of making sure you take care of every little thing that could give you advantage. Uh, that's legal, of course. And they just, I, I happen to have some good leaders that bought into it and just kind of carried the torch, and it became part of our culture. New athletes would come in, and I didn't even have to convince them of the importance of it. You know, we would watch a lot of tournaments on TV, especially, you know, the Grand Slam tournaments, and just talk about the mental aspect of how that athlete's staying strong, how that helped them. And, and I think once you can show how the top players in a sport do use the mental side, there's more buy-in from the athletes. And when you convince them that it's going to give them an edge, Right, right. You know, over the years, I've had several mental coaching experts on the Parenting Aces podcast. And, you know, I think a lot of it does come down to the athlete's willingness to work on that piece of the game more so maybe even than the you know, the ability or the strength of the coach him or herself. Um, you know, it's really seems to be all in the hands of the athlete. And I, it's funny that you said that as a college coach, you know, you, they, your, your players didn't really have much of a choice because <laughs> you're, you're the boss there. And, and I think, I mean, though you said it jokingly, there is a lot of truth to that. It's different at the junior level, though. And I'm wondering if maybe you can speak to that a little bit and help parents whose kids may be struggling mentally on the court. Um, you know, how do we get our kids to a place where they're willing to work on that? Well, the first thing I always say when I have a phone call from a parent um, calling about their their child, my first thing is, let's make sure they want to do this. Because if they don't, it's a waste of your money and a waste of my time. And it really is, because I think you just mentioned it, the buy-in is the important part. If an athlete believes in what they're doing, that advances them so much further than an athlete that's questioning everything they do. Um, So that's my first thing. I always have 
direct conversations with the parents and then the athlete and making sure they do want to do it. And then from there, I think from the parent side, it's important that you don't phrase it in a way that their child needs help. Um, I've had I've heard parents say, well, dear, you need help. And it makes them feel like they're not as good as the number one player who, in their eyes, doesn't need help. Mm-hmm. But instead of, of phrasing it in a way where I'm giving you an additional resource, I think more, the more and more we can define the middle game as, I, I like to say, the new frontier, um, like strength and conditioning was when I was coming along. Not everyone did strength and conditioning. That Now that's almost, you know, a given. And to me, all we're doing now is taking it a step further and doing strength and conditioning for your mind and giving you an additional asset. And I think the more we phrase that and making it okay, because I still think there's a negative connotation with a lot of athletes out there that sports psychologist, a mental game coach, then, uh-oh, that means something's wrong with me. Right. Where, in effect, it's really an extra benefit. We're trying to train your brain. You spend so much time working on the physical aspect. Let's make sure the brain's caught up with the physical part. I think that's a great point. And, you know, it's words mean a lot. Uh, and we have to be very careful, especially if we have a child who is like my children are. Um, my husband's a litigator, so they come by it very honestly, but they question everything. You know, they argue with everything. You know, why do I need this? Prove to me, you know, show me. Um, and, and I don't think I'm in the minority here. I think a lot of kids that go into tennis because it is an individual sport, it, it calls to, speaks to a certain type of personality I think there are a lot of tennis players out there that are of that similar kind of mindset of, you know, show me how this is going to help me. I don't, you know, just because you say it doesn't make it so. And and I think it's really important to have for parents to have those tools, like you said, of, you know, this is this is just like what you're doing in the gym for your body. You're just doing it for your brain instead. And your brain is an important factor in your ability to have success in the sport, right? I mean, it's it's a huge piece. We right. hear that from the commentators, even Chrissy Everett, the commentator, we hear that from her all the time, <laughs> right? Exactly, exactly. And, and and I think using the the professional players now, uh, many times the commentator, commentators will mention someone that they're working with on the mental side. You know, a lot of the top collegiate programs have someone that comes in and works with them. So I think when you give those examples to our our youth today, to our junior players, that gives more buy-in. Right. I agree. So how important is it to have a mental coach separate from the, quote, tennis coach, the on-court coach? Or... Is it important for the on-court coach to develop skills so that they can also be the mental coach? I don't know if there's an easy answer uh, for that. I think ideally the junior coach, your best junior coaches want to train themselves in all areas. 
some are going to be more proficient in some areas than others, some on the technical part, some on the conditioning part, some on the mental toughness part. Um, I do think it, it probably uh, probably works best when the junior coach has those tools, tools in his or her teaching game. I don't think it's, it's critical. Um, I do think if that junior coach doesn't have that but brings, you know, another game piece, then, then finding a mental coach that can work with the junior coach. I think the most important part is that have those coaches that work together, whether it's they talk by phone just so the language is the same, or a lot of times I'll show up at, at a lesson. I don't interfere with the junior coach as far as the drills, but I'm there to talk or to call a timeout of how to reset, get your mind back into the drill. Um, so I think more importantly is that it all ties together, whether it's the junior coach playing both roles or having a mental coach that can go hand-in-hand hand with the junior coach. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I, I'm going to put words in your mouth for a second here, so, so pardon me. But, okay. you know, have it, having that communication between the two, if there, if it is indeed two separate people working with your child, is huge, right? Yes. Yes. Oh, that to me, that's the most important part. You you have to, or it's kind of confusing for the athlete, the tennis player. They may hear one thing from the tennis coach, and another thing from a mental coach, another thing from a strength and conditioning coach. So the more all your coaches are on the same same communication wave, you can create a better game plan and you're all working together. Mm-hmm. I I mean, this, this whole idea of communication comes up over and over and over again on this podcast, whether it's in terms of the parent and the child communicating about goals and wishes and uh, abilities and and effort and all of those things, or whether it's between the parent and the coach, or the coach and the player, or you know the the various uh, personalities on the coaching team. I mean, I, it just all comes down to that communication piece, and and I I can't stress enough how important it is, especially if your budget for your child's tennis development is limited as most of ours is, um, it's the only way to avoid throwing money down the drain is to make sure that everybody's talking and on the same page in terms of a developmental plan, as you said, Tammy. I would agree wholeheartedly. Um, and, And that's one of the risks of mental coaching. A lot of parents don't want to commit to that money because there's not a guarantee. But you help strengthen the percentage that it will be successful by making sure everyone's on board, everyone's on the same page. Right, for sure. Well, so talk to me a little bit about Refuse to Lose. What is that? What are you, um, what are your goals for Refuse to Lose? And how do you work with junior and college players? Refuse to Lose is a middle game company. Um, I'm the owner and the only employee. Um, but I am a middle game uh, coach, and my goal is to go out and work with student athletes, coaches, teams, parents, all in the mental aspects. Um, what I tell coaches ahead of time 
even if it's in tennis, my job is to come in and work on the mental aspects. I stay out of the strategic, the tactical, the technical, and I try to add to those areas that the coach has been paid to coach for. And my job is to strengthen that in however it looks. Um, What I like to do is have an assessment before working with an athlete or a team, find out their strengths and their weaknesses, and what we can do to help give you another asset, or I call it another tool in your toolbox, Mm -hmm. to make you that much stronger, that much better. Is the assessment completed by the athlete or by the coach, or is there a piece for both? How does that work? A a piece for both. And if I'm doing a team, then it's kind of a team. Everyone gives me, you know, questions regarding to their team Mm -hmm. and the coach, what he sees on his team or what he would like to strengthen. If it's an individual athlete, they fill out the assessment, um, questions related to their confidence, to their mental toughness, to areas they could they feel like would make them a better athlete. And, and is, the parent, okay. is the parent involved in that assessment at all? I usually do not have the parent involved. Usually the parent gives me a pretty good rundown um, when I'm initially <laughs> talking to them. I'll bet it. Well, I hope they do, and, and I always <laughs> want that. But, but I like to keep the assessment different uh, because it is not every time, but a lot of times – the athlete's going to give you a, a different story than the parent has. And that's not to say the parent's off base, but a lot of times that athlete knows the time and the money their their parents are putting into their sport. And a lot of them want to please or give the right answers or this is what mom and dad tell me. And so I like to make it separate and get it, see if there's another student athlete side. And one thing I found out, if the student-athlete, I like to to have an initial conversation with them just so they feel comfortable, where they say, yes, I do want to work with her, or no, I don't feel comfortable working with her. So I like to have that first. And again, that helps with the buy-in. And, you know, then I like to talk to them and say, I'm this person that's not determining what tournaments you play, you know, the allowance you get, the money we're putting to your sport, what time you have to go to bed. I, I'm the good guy. I get to be that middle man, that middle person that I'm just here to help you in whatever way I can. And, and there's nothing, you don't have to please me. You don't have to do stuff for me. And, and I say this to coaches as well. A lot of times coaches will say, oh my goodness, I just told them the exact same thing. Mm. But having that additional voice or that person that that's just completely unattached to what's going on, I think is a, another asset, or I have found that has enabled me to get the student athletes to open up more than, than they may. How do you gauge whether or not you've been successful when you've worked with either a junior player or a college player? That's that's an excellent question, and I wish I had some good numbers for that, and I've racked my brain through the years of trying to determine that. Um, And a lot of people judge it by wins and losses, but to me, the middle game is so much more about wins and losses. It's, did I help you overcome adversity? Did I make you better equipped, better able to handle whatever comes your way? And so that's hard to get 
you know, an objective uh, read on that sometimes. But when you have an athlete five years down the road, then they call up and say, oh, my gosh, what you taught me there I'm using now today in my personal life or my professional life. I call those my wins. You know, when I get a call from an athlete that they came back from a bad situation, even though they didn't win, but they still feel good about themselves and it didn't take a big chunk of their confidence away, then to me that's a win. And ultimately, my job is can I make a difference in the athletes' lives I work with? And my goal is, and some people say I should go higher, but at the end of the day, can I say I made a difference with five athletes? And to me, making a difference is not always winning and losing. It's Mm -hmm. am I helping them prepare for whatever's to come ahead, whether it's next week's contest, next year's professional life, next year's academic life, or how, whatever that looks like. Yeah, I think that's amazing. It's interesting, you know, that the higher you go in junior tennis, you know, if you go to these high-level events, it seems to me that there is a lack of joy <laughs> for most of these kids. <laughs> you know, it's tennis has lost the the game component and has become a job for them, you know, if they're playing at right. those high levels. And I interestingly, my son's last college coach talked a lot about finding the joy on the on the court and, you know, he he had to work there. Yeah, well, he's phenomenal. Um, And he had to work really hard because the team had, you know, a rough year, a a badly losing season. Um, But all he was focused on was helping them find the joy on the court. And to me, that is, it's a simple thing to say, but it's becoming harder and harder to help our kids find that joy when they're out there. What are some of the things that you do when you work with players to help get them back to that reason why they first picked up a racket? Like you were talking about, you know, watching Chrissy Everett on TV and how that inspired you. How do you get these kids back to that? One of the first exercises that I usually have them do is an index card. And number one, you write, why did you start playing your sport to begin with? Number two, why you enjoy playing your sport now? Number three, why you enjoy playing at your college, at your high school, or whatever team or organization you're playing within? And I ask them to keep that where they can see it daily. And as soon as they start to have that, oh, this just isn't fun anymore, or where they stop enjoying it, to read that index card and to remind them of why they first started playing the game to begin with. Because I do agree that we do, especially the higher you go, and it seems to be more so in individual sports, the pressure to get more, more, higher, higher, better, better. And they do lose sight of that. You know, I work with some young gymnasts, and that that is seen heavily there. It's just so much pressure. And I think that we are doing a disservice to our juniors if we don't teach them, hey, stop, enjoy the moment. Remember why you're doing this. You know, another uh, exercise I have them do at the end of every contest, whether it was great, whether it was awful, you have to list five specific things that you enjoyed and did well. 
And I've had so many people say, oh, that was just a horrible performance. There's no way I can find five. But if you make it a requirement and they know they have to, then their brain starts focusing in and honing in on, okay, wait a minute. I did stink today, but I did do this well. Or, oh, yeah, I did have fun doing this. (laughs) You know, I mean, that's human nature. Our brain will find what it's focusing on. And it's just training their brain to focus on what is good instead of what isn't good. We can we can find both in everything that happens every day. Absolutely, I, I agree with that a hundred percent. Mindset is is huge. Um, but but have you ever had a situation where a junior college player said to you, "I really I I can't answer these questions because I'm really not happy." And if you hear that, what? What do you do? I mean, at what point do you say to a player, you know what? It's time for you to find something else to do. This is life's too short, you know? And I, and, I think and that has happened. Yeah. Oh yeah. That, that happens. Um, I hear, I shouldn't say a lot, but you do get, well, I only play for mom or dad. And that's the time where I challenge them that they need to have some, It goes back to that word, you know, communication. They need to have some real conversations with their parents. Um, I challenge them to search inside first. Do they really mean that? Um, Are they just frustrated? And then they need to have some conversations with mom and dad about that. Sometimes they're just in a a rut, a bad spot. They're burned out. And sometimes just a week off or a month off helps. So I I don't know if there's, you know, a one-fits-all piece of advice to give, but I do think, you know, there's many situations where burnout just needs some time away or no, they don't love the game and maybe never have. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, one of the things I just remember having this conversation with my child is if, if tennis weren't part of your life, what would you be doing differently? And I think that's an important conversation for us as parents to have with our children when they reach that stage, you know, where they want to quit or they they just are exhibiting those signs, as you said, of burnout um, and, you know, understanding as parents that it's okay for them to take a break, but they also need to put some thought into, all right, well, I'm not going to be on the court two to five hours a day. I'm not going to be spending my weekend at a tournament. How am I going to be spending my time? How am I going to fill that in a productive way? Right? I think that's an excellent, excellent conversation for the parents um, when their child reaches that. And funny growing up, I had a twin brother, very athletic. um, And my father had always said in the summer, if you will dedicate, he gave us X amount of hours a day to your sport, then you don't have to have a summer job. This was in high school. Mm-hmm. If you don't, you have to have a summer job. Well, there was no question in my mind what I was doing. I was on the tennis court or basketball court as soon as it was light till it was dark. Um, my brother, he was a very gifted athlete but didn't have the, quite the same desire to put the time in. Um, so he chose to, to work. That was his other option. And it quickly changed his mind after working in a factory from nine to five in the summer. So I think showing your children that 
there's worse alternatives or thinking about what would you be doing. I, I think that's a great, great conversation. And, and again, we keep coming back to this. It all boils down to having the communication between the parent and the athlete, the athlete and the coach. For sure. And, I, you know, I can't stress that enough. Um, I I think it's a lot of these kids, they tend to kind of fall into this mindset of I'm a tennis player. That's all I am. That's all I do. You know, that's that's how I spend every waking moment. Uh, you know, they go to school. They're known as a tennis player or, you know, some of them are homeschooled, so they don't even have a break from it, you know, for, for school stuff. And, and I think it's, it's a slippery slope. I mean, you hear about these tennis prodigies and, and I can't speak to other sports because my kids never played other sports at, at a high level, like my son did with tennis. But I, you know, you hear these prodigies who, you know, and it sounds like you were like this, who couldn't wait to get up in the morning and go hit against the garage door and, you know, just I, give me tennis. Let, let me be on the tennis court. Let me be around, you know, let me hold a racket. Let me bounce a ball. Let me do anything I can around tennis. Let me read books. Let me watch matches. But that's a very small percentage, I think, of the overall junior tennis playing population. And I think a lot of them really, you know, it does become a chore for them after a while, a a grind. And, and I don't know, I just feel like the responsibility that we as parents and, and that coaches have toward helping them continue to find that joy and, or making that decision that it's time to take a break or, take a permanent break. It's tough. It's really tough. And I, to me, that's where somebody like you, Tammy is so incredibly helpful because like you said, you're the good guy. You're the one that our kid can talk to and say, Hey, you know, I'm having these feelings about my sport, you know, and, and you can guide them about how to broach the topic with their on-court coach or with their parent. Right. And, and you're right. I'm glad you mentioned their on-court coach because sometimes it's just coming down to they're not having fun because they're doing the same drills day after day. And sometimes it's as simple as let's just spice up, you know, practice. Um, you know, other times it's more in-depth than that. But again, you know, I can't stress enough the, the importance of having that communication and the importance of someone in my role that can help facilitate that. Mm -hmm. And so if people want to find out more about what you do and, and to work with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, I have a website. It's www.r2lc.com. The R2LC is refuse to lose coaching, just abbreviated. And that it gives you a lot of uh, ideas of what I do do. Um, I have some blogs on there as well. Um, of course, on social media, um, I have an active presence that kind of tells a little bit what I do or I send out my daily tips. Or um, So my social media sites. And um, in addition, I just wrote a book as well to help reach as many people as possible. And it's called The Confident Athlete, Four Easy Steps to Build and Maintain Confidence. 
and it's currently online at Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And I, I think with my idea behind the book was to reach more people. And I know confidence isn't really hitting what you've said about burnout or not enjoying the sport. But in my experience as an athlete, as a coach, and now in my role as a mental game coach, so many issues, problems, negativity boil down to that lack of confidence. Sometimes we we lose our love for the game because maybe we're not as confident as we could be. Or we're having issues we can't communicate with a coach because of lack of confidence. Um, so that was my reason for picking the topic that I did choose for the book. And I do think, you know, just reading through that, I've tried to make it as easy as possible to grasp and give exercises and stories. Uh, so any athlete can take it and apply it and help them become even more confident than they already may be. I That's, I mean, it's a huge part of any sport, but especially an individual sport. And let me just say to my listeners, all of the websites and the social media links and the link to Tammy's book will be in the show notes. So be sure and take a look at those. You'll have clickable links there. But Tammy, let's let's get into this whole idea of confidence and and what players and what players' parents can do that, you know, there's that whole um, kind of debate on whether confidence is an internal thing that comes out or if it's something that's imposed from the outside and then has to be internalized. What is your view on that? Confidence to me is a skill just like any other physical skill. It's something that can be developed just like our serve in tennis or working on our forehand. That isn't to say, and just like if you work on your serve, you're not going to have the most powerful serve in the world necessary, but you're going to have a better serve than you started with. To me, if you make confidence building a consistent part of your life, then you're going to have a steady supply of confidence. And I think so many people, not just athletes, but so many people are on what I call roller coaster confidence. We do well, or up, up top. Something bad happens, whoo, there we go flying down the hill. Something good happens, we start back up the hill. And to me, to be successful in any aspect, we have to learn how do we keep a steady supply of confidence and not let it be based off of our circumstances or results. And to me, that's the key. So I, I do think it can be learned. You may not become the most confident person in the world, but you're going to develop that steady supply that can help you get through anything. It doesn't mean you're going to win every contest. Everybody thinks, oh, magic pill, and unfortunately it's not. But it's going to help you be more prepared and hopefully increase you know, your winning percentage. So are you saying that you know, for, for junior or even college players, who are on a winning streak and, and that, you know, the wins tend to fuel more wins and, you know, that confidence kind of builds with each successive win, especially when it's a come from behind win, or maybe they're playing with an injury and they're still able to win, or they're just having a really off day or, and are able to pull out the win. But you're saying in, I guess my understanding of what you're saying is that we have to learn not to base our confidence on 
outcomes and results, we have to find another way to feed that. Am I saying that correctly? You you said that perfectly. Can I quote you for my next book there? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) I love getting quoted. Um, (laughs) um, No, no, I think you, let me go back to something you said. Now, experience can help build confidence. Obviously, when we have, you know, one of the exercises I suggest in the book is think about your past experiences. And I like for athletes to have what I call your ESPN highlight reel that you think back to before you start to play. So you're just feeding that confidence by seeing yourself performing well. So past experiences does have its role, but we can't base our confidence on it. We use it to help increase. Does that make sense? It does. I, I, I think it's such a complicated concept, though, because I just, you know, having watched my child again, I, my poor son, I use him as an example all the time. But, um, you know, I, when he was playing well and posting consecutive wins, you know, tournament after tournament after tournament, that all seemed to feed him mentally and confidence wise. Mm-hmm. Um, one bad loss, on the other hand, could throw him into a tailspin, you know, and and that was always a challenge for me being the parent that was typically at the tournaments with him, you know, is how do I keep him more even keeled, as you said, you know, and not let him not let a result throw him off course. I think that's really challenging. And I think, you know, for a lot of kids, um, everything is around whether they win or they lose, right? It's it's very difficult yes. to separate. Uh, it, it is very, yeah, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but no, it, it is very difficult. But to me, that's the challenge. If, if we learn how to train our brains to accept it as one bad performance then how much happier are we going to be? How much burnout does that prevent? How much negativity does that prevent? And and that's the key, and that's why I hope that, you know, through the exercises I give in the book that it helps athletes, and even non-athletes, learn how to keep that confidence at a steady level. You know, I, I tell athletes, think of the years you've put in your sport. One bad day should not dest- destroy all the time you've spent developing your craft. If it's a bad outing, the thought should be, hey, this was a bad day. What do I learn from it? And move forward. But, yeah, that's yeah, one of the things. Than done. Yeah, that's one of the things I love about Rafael Nadal. And people that have been following me for a while know I'm I'm a huge Rafa fan. <laughs> Just over the top <laughs> Rafa fan. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but what's so amazing to me is when you see him in his post-match interviews after a loss, he says exactly what you just said. It's, it's a tennis match. It's one match out of thousands that I have played and have yet to play. If I let Mm -hmm. this one loss define my career, I mean, that, that would be terrible. You know, and and he's so good at that. And he's so good at keeping the media on track with that. He, you know, he puts them in their place. Like, you're not going to bring me down by asking me if my world has been destroyed because I lost in the semifinals. You know, (laughs) like I got to the semifinals. That's huge. Exactly. 
And, and, and I think that's amazing, and it is refreshing to see because so many of our juniors, it's life or death, and it, it's not. And I think that's where as parents and coaches, we can do a better job of it isn't the end of the world. Um, right. and, you know, I don't think society does us any favors with that either. But, you know, Rafi does a great job, and I think that was one thing that Chris Everett made such a last, lasting impression on me if you remember her watching, you couldn't tell if she won the point or not. Mm-hmm. No, I had a Chris Everett playing. autograph racket, and I wore the little All dresses. Right. So, yeah, I'm right there with you. <laughs> you and I are the same generation. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, it, and I just, I love that. And if you look at some of the top players in any sport, they're the same. You know, Jordan in basketball, I think he had the, the quote, he missed how many shots, but he made how many. Right, and I'm I'm butchering that quote up, but the the idea is, are you focused on that one you missed or lost? Are you focused on what you have done? And what is, again, we we attach too much emotion. We attach more emotional value to a loss than a win. Mm-hmm. I think that's Sorry true. I interrupt you. No, well, what I was going to say is, what is some language that we as parents can use with our children to help move them toward that way of approaching their sport? I think, you know, going back to, and I think it's knowing your child, because I, if my parents had said some of this stuff, I think I would have rolled my eyes where a coach, I would have, you know, gladly answered, but it, mm-hmm. oh no, mom and dad talking. And I know each parent and child's relationship is different. Uh, I don't want to assume, you know, they're all the same. So knowing how to respond to your child, I think is the most important thing, regardless of the language you you use. There's so many athletes I work with they dread that initial talk with mom and dad. But my advice is ask them to give you the evening, ask you to give them the day, then you talk about it. Mm Because sometimes athletes just need to process it. And what I hear more times than not, they don't want to hear it was okay. And I know as parents, we want to protect them, make them feel better. And often that first word is, hey, it's okay. And to them, no, it's not at that moment, but give them time let them throw themselves into something else, and often they come back around. Um, If they do want to talk, then it's finding what they did do well. And and I will have to say this about my father. He was amazing. When I won, he quickly pointed out everything I did wrong. When I lost or had a bad game, he quickly could tell me specific things I did right. And it was a great balance for me. Again, not every athlete's going to work the same. So I think it is important that as a parent, you you know your child. You know how to push those buttons. Do they need some quiet time? Do they need to talk? And letting them talk. You know, a lot of times you hear a child say, I don't want to talk. And then they just start talking, you know, and, and just the motion pouring out. So I don't know if I can I can give you something specific there. But my first advice is is learn your child and how they respond not what you as a parent want to give them. Right. Well, I think that's great advice. And I think it's so flipping hard to be quiet when our kid comes off the court. Yeah. I, I, th- I mean, truly, it is one of the hardest parts of having your child compete is keeping your mouth shut when they come off, whether they've won or they've lost. And 
I, you know, it's, it's something that I had to work on constantly and never, never perfected it, never mastered it. I got better, but um, like you said, if you practice, you, you will improve. So I, I patted myself on the back for that, but, but I, I just, it's so, so tough to not, I mean, especially if they come off the court and they've had a huge win, you know, it's, it's an upset kind of win where, you know, they've beaten the top seed or whatever. It's so hard to just be even keeled and, and not make this huge (laughs) deal out of it because it's a huge deal. And, and the same thing with the losses, you know, if, if they've lost to, you know, if they've lost to a better player, those are a little easier to deal with. But when they've lost to somebody that, you know, quote, they should have beaten, I mean, it's tough. And especially if they haven't put forth their best effort or, you know, maintain their cool on the court or whatever has gone on. It's just, it's a tough, a tough role to be in. And, and I would encourage parents to keep working on it. It's, it's a gift to your child. It it really is. And, you know, one suggestion is to have those conversations beforehand because in the heat of the moment, emotions take over. But I, I, I would ask my child, hey, if you lose, do you like talking about it immediately or do you like when I give you time? Or or the same thing about winning and having those conversations ahead of time. Mm-hmm. But you kind of know better what they do need when it does happen. Yeah, I, that's a great suggestion and uh, one I wish I had had done. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, it's, it's There's always things we wish we had done. Yeah, exactly. it is very tough. I just, you know, I always joke that, I mean, I got to keep the psychologist in business somehow. There's got to be something to come out on the couch when they're in their 30s and 40s, right? (laughs) I have to mess up somewhere. Uh, well, Tammy, thank you so much. And I, I encourage my listeners to check out your website. And again, the links will all be in the show notes, but, um, wishing you success with your new book and, uh, you know, I look forward to having you on the show again, and maybe we can talk college recruiting on a future podcast. I think that would be a fun topic to tackle with you. Um, you know, just talk about how you approached it, especially at the D2 level, because I, I don't get the opportunity to talk to D2 coaches as much as I get to talk to the D1 and D3 coaches. So I think that would be a fun future podcast for us if you're willing. Um, I would love to, and I have enjoyed today. I always enjoy talking about tennis and and the mental side. So thank you very much for having me on. Thank you. And to my listeners, thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time on Parenting Aces. I'm Lisa Stone, and you've been listening to the Parenting Aces podcast. For tennis parents, by a tennis parent. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to us and write a review on iTunes. For more information on navigating the junior and college tennis journey, please visit us online at ParentingAces.com. Thanks for tuning in and sharing us with your tennis community.